Welcome, everyone, to the 2009 Justice Summit. My name is Jeff Adachi. I'm the public defender uh, here in San Francisco. And I want to begin this morning by thanking each of you for coming out and supporting uh, this event. We have more than a packed house. This is a celebration of justice. That's why we're here today. 220 years ago, in 1789, the Bill of Rights was introduced. The Bill of Rights was a response to the Constitution, which had been ratified just that year. James Madison, who introduced the Bill of Rights in June of 1789, almost 220 years to the to the day here, that the mass of people who opposed the Constitution did so because they did not believe that the Constitution provided sufficient protection for human liberties. And so when he introduced the Bill of Rights, it contained 10 amendments to the Constitution. The First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. But what was very interesting is that most of the constitutional protections involve protections to persons who are accused of crime. The Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate oneself and to due process. And of course, the Sixth Amendment right to a fair and public trial, to be advised of the charges against you, to be able to question and cross-examine witnesses in a criminal prosecution, and yes, the right to counsel. And that's because the founding fathers and mothers of this country understood and knew what was possible if you didn't have the checks and balances in government? And so when the Bill of Rights passed, it became the most significant document in terms of setting forth the plan for this country in the years to come. So what are these constitutional rights that we have. I mean, you can't see it. You can't taste it. How do we know that a constitutional right is really there? You know, we really don't. We don't know it until they're not there. Until the constitutional right has been taken away. And we've seen that, haven't we? Just in our lifetimes. In the aftermath of 9-11, we've, we've seen a wholesale suspension of civil and constitutional rights in this country. The last time that happened was in World War II. I remember learning about my parents and grandparents' internment during the war and how they were taken from their homes, deprived of their possessions, sent to concentration camps for five years without having been convicted 
of any crime. And even today, we are denying the fundamental right for two people in love to marry. So these constitutional rights are something that we, as the people, are responsible for enforcing. A constitutional right doesn't defend itself. It's got to have people to defend it. And the Sixth Amendment right to counsel doesn't defend itself. There need to be people, people who defend it. And that is what public defenders do, defense attorneys do, and attorneys who work on the appointed panel do each and every day, is to enforce not only the Sixth Amendment, but our entire Bill of Rights, to make sure that in the intersection between government power and law enforcement, that those rights are upheld and are respected. Today, we face a very different attack on our constitutional rights, and that is budget cuts. Because in these difficult economic times that the country is experiencing, we do have to ask ourselves, how important are these rights? I know I've been uh, asked that question a lot. Why can't public defenders just go along with the program? Why can't public defenders just accept a budget cut? And this is something that's not happening only in San Francisco. It's happening around the country. In Florida, in Maryland, Tennessee, where defender offices have already lost substantial parts of their staff. And it is happening here in California. We have always prided ourselves on having one of the best defense systems which was established in 1916. Most of us may never be touched by the Sixth Amendment. may not matter, because you wouldn't think about it until you were in a situation where you needed a lawyer. What kind of lawyer would you want for your family member, for yourself? Would you want a lawyer who didn't have the resources needed to represent you or your loved one? Would you want to be in a situation where your lawyer was so overloaded with cases that he or she couldn't do what needed to be done in your case? Would you want a 75% lawyer, a 50% lawyer, a 25% lawyer? And again, the Sixth Amendment doesn't defend itself. You know, Robert Kennedy, when he was Attorney General of this country in 1962, understood that. Because when they needed somebody to enforce the civil rights law, they called upon 
a new lawyer, a young lawyer, a lawyer who was the first African-American attorney to be assigned to the Justice Department of Civil Rights. And he went to the Deep South to protect the civil rights of citizens there. At one point, he loaned his car to an activist so the activist could attend an event. For that act, he lost his job. The activist was the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. And the attorney was Dalton Henderson. And I know that many of you are here to hear Dalton Henderson. I have to tell you, I was looking forward very much to his remarks. And I was very disappointed when I received a call, a very heartfelt call, that Dalton Henderson would not be able to speak today. He had prepared a speech on the right to counsel. This is an event to educate the public, and judges are permitted to do that. But he received a call from Washington, D.C., saying that he could not speak uh, at this event. And uh, you, will, you know that Fountain Henderson, as a federal judge and one of the most respected judges um, in this nation, if not the world, um, believes in the law. And he had to um, decline to speak. But the powers that be didn't say he couldn't be here. <laughs> and so although he can't deliver the keynote address, um, he is here. And I'm going to have uh, Julie Tron, uh, who is one of the administrators of the Bar Association Conflicts Panel, uh, which uh, is a true partner with the Public Defender's Office, and together we make up the Incident Defense Bar in San Francisco, uh, come up and uh, introduce uh, Judge Henderson uh, for his non-speech, which will occur this minute. Thank you. As Jeff mentioned, I'm Julie Tron, and I am a board member of California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, as well as the attorney administrator for the Indigent Defense Administration, which partners with the Public Defender's Office in the delivery of legal services to San Francisco's poor and underserved community. There are many speakers and presenters here today. I am so impressed by the volunteerism of the professionals who have agreed to be here today and address all of us today on this important issue. But I don't think that there's anyone in this room or anyone on, at this podium that has a greater honor than I to introduce you to Judge Thelton Henderson. As Jeff mentioned, Judge Henderson began his legal career as an attorney 
with the Department of Justice. His assignment was to be the eyes and ears for Bobby Kennedy in the South during the Civil Rights Movement and to monitor the South's law enforcement reaction to the Civil Rights Movement. Of course, as the only attorney of color, his assignment and his role was fought with political peril, for he was more likely to be seen for the color of his skin than as a representative of the United States government. Andrew Young has said of Judge Henderson, because he personally lived through a, the consequences of lawlessness in the name of law, he is much more likely to make fair and just and informed decisions because of his real life experiences. He has been and continues to be determined to find equal justice for all. In 1966, he founded one of the first legal aid offices in the country in East Palo Alto, California, a community of people of color, a community that had been historically underserved, and a poor community. He sought attorneys of color to staff this office, but was unable to find them. He approached Stanford University Law School and asked for help. At that time, Stanford, like his own Bolt Hall, had graduated very few, if any, attorneys of color, one or two at the most. Stanford wisely appointed Judge Henderson, then Felton Henderson, to head their minority recruitment program. And in a few short years, the graduation rate of attorneys of color from Stanford University transformed from one or two to 20 percent. One of those recruits you will hear from later today, Judge LaDoris Hazard Cordell. Another of those recruits, Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree, explains that being recruited by Felton Henderson was more than a recruit, for he mentored us, he guided us, he supported us because he knew that we were among the very few attorneys of color in an all-white, historically white community. Charles August Ogletree said, he told us, I don't want you to simply go to law school. I want you to have a passion for the law. I want you, and I want you to understand that anyone can go and work for a law firm. But the hardest thing to do was to use our skills the way he did to become a public interest lawyer, someone deeply committed to helping others. Even during his tenure as a federal judge, he volunteered his time with Alameda County uh, Diversion Program, where he sat as a judge in the diversion court, counseling, encouraging the young people who came before them who were making every effort to turn their lives around. I speak as someone who attended law school at a time when we studied the decisions of the Warren Court. I speak to you as someone who started practice when the Bird Court was my guide. And since the demise of the Bird Court, and since the demise of the Warren Court, I find myself, as I'm sure many of you do, lost at sea, a sea of mediocrity, when I think about the judges who are instilled with the power to enforce and to interpret our Constitution. But I am reminded, every time I look out at sea, I do see 
an incredibly luminescent ship, and it is the ship, the SS Constitution, and its commander is Felton Henderson. Now, I know, and he knows, that there's a little bit of fishing going on on that ship, but in reality, what he's really doing is he is often the lone voice, and he is a strong voice for those who have been abandoned and underserved in our communities. Amid political turmoil, great pressures from the governor, the prisoner guard union, one of the strongest unions in the state of California, he has single-handedly taken over the California medical care or lack of medical care delivered in our California prisons. The care that was being provided was not only unconstitutional, it was unconscionable for us as a society. Our prisoners were dying needlessly at a rate of one a week until Judge Henderson took over the care. He continues to protect the citizens abandoned and hated by society, its discarded members, the prisoners of the state of California, for he knows that when we abandon the least of us, we abandon our very soul. Abby Ginsberg made an award-winning film rightly entitled Soul of Justice. If you haven't seen it, I recommend that you do because it documents the life of this extraordinary man. Whether it is the Department of Corrections, the state of California, the governor, the Fish and Game, the Commerce Department, international trade organizations, or corporations fighting for their right to fish tuna from our waters, even if it costs us every single dolphin in the sea, or whether it is Proposition 209, which he reversed. Judge Henderson is there at hand to right the wrong, to remind us all of our obligation, our sacred obligation, to hold our, constitutional, our Constitution in the place it is intended to be held. At the forefront is that document which applies to all of us, not the privileged, not the few, but to all of us. For those that know him, you know he is not a man of ego. He is a man of purpose. He is a man of substance. Judge Marty Hen Jenkins said of him, the way in which Felton Henderson comports himself and does his job is something that we on the bench aspire to. That quality always manifests itself. That humility, that selflessness, that concern about others, a sense of fairness and expression of compassion, real compassion from his heart while on the record he isn't he is the kind of value that we want people who are making these decisions about other people's lives. I know that all of you will join me in thanking Judge Henderson for commanding our brightly lit, our luminescent ship as we go forward at a time when we need more courage than we have needed in a long time to conduct ourselves during these very difficult and challenging times. Thank you so much, Judge Henderson, for being here today.
so much, Julie, and, and thank you, Jeff, uh, for those kind words and for inviting me here. Let me start by saying not only is this a non-speech, Jeff, but I'm not here. Uh, um, I prepared a, a keynote speech, and uh, to the extent that I can't give it, I apologize for the false advertising, and so I won't speak nearly as long as I had intended, and that um, uh, I'll tell you what Elizabeth Taylor is reputed to have told her seventh husband just before the ceremony. I won't keep you long. Uh, as Jeff said, uh, we're here to celebrate justice, and uh, I am always ready to celebrate justice. And so I'm here to celebrate justice. Uh, Jeff referred, there's an ethical canon I found out about and was reminded of after I agreed to speak. And it says that judges, federal judges, cannot use their name, their reputation, and their position uh, to involve themselves in things of a political nature. And I guess this is not viewed there as a celebration of justice, but as something of a political nature. And so I can't, uh, that's why I'm not here. Uh, but um, at this stage of my life, I'm a senior judge, and um, I'm really working for free these days. Um, I've got lifetime tenure, and to do anything to me, they, they have to impeach me. And so I sort of push the envelope, and so I'm sort of here. Uh, and uh, want you to know. <laughs> you to know how important uh, this celebration for justice is to me and to you and the community and the country. I read the paper about a week ago, maybe 10 days, and I think it puts Jeff's plight and concern in a perspective for me. I read that a fellow who has been charged with large security fraud petitioned the court through his attorney. All of his money had been seized pending the outcome of the case. Petitioned the court to release $10 million so that he could receive a fair trial. He needed that for his attorney and added as a footnote that might need as much as $20 million. And so as you listen to the speakers today and you think about what Jeff's asking to run this fine office that he does and to give adequate representation there, put that in perspective of this one case, uh, and I think you'll get some insights into fairness. As I said, I won't keep you long, but um, I've known Professor Barbara Babcock and 
Judge Ladaris Cardell for well over 30 years. We talk all the time, and uh, there are things I can't say to you. Maybe they know what I think, and uh, listen to them, and I'm sure we'll be pretty much in tune uh, <laughs> with what we think about this situation. Uh, there is a need for full and fair representation. And I'm going to close by telling you what I hear attorneys, actually they're usually uh, defense attorneys, they're always defense attorneys. When they argue to a jury, they'll say something like, um, you know, uh, I don't, uh, I just get to speak to you once. Um, and then the other side is going to, they've spoken to you, and they're going to get to speak to you again. And I won't be able to respond uh, to their closing comments. But I want you to, as you listen to it, imagine what I would say to them. <laughs> and so I want you, as you listen to this wonderful panel, imagine what I would say. Uh, but then again, I'm not here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judge Felton Henderson, for not being here. <laughs> now, it brings me great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, three leaders uh, who are here uh, to join in our celebration of justice. The first is someone who really needs no introduction. He is the most progressive sheriff, and I, I don't think uh, that those two words go together anywhere else. Uh, but Michael Hennessy. Um, as an elected official and as our sheriff has done more uh, to help in the re rehabilitation and support of former prisoners. He does it all. He runs a school. He runs reentry programs. He uh, even operates a job fair, which I think is coming up next week. And he's a full-service sheriff. And he's somebody who has continued to have a huge influence, not only here in San Francisco, but everywhere, because we know what's not working. We know the California Department of Corrections is not working. And in San Francisco, we're very fortunate that we have a sheriff who does know how to make things work. Let's give it up for Sheriff Michael Henderson. Good morning, everyone, and I'm happy to be part of the sponsorship of this program. Uh, it's my firm belief that we need a balanced criminal justice system, uh, and that balance includes uh, funding for law enforcement, for prosecution, and for proper defense. And I think that's uh, why we're here, and um, that's why I'm part of the sponsorship of this. Uh, I know we have a new president, and there's great hopes about our new president, and I expect any day now that um, all uh, unreasonable plea bargain offers will be withdrawn. And, and all uh, ICE uh, detainers will come with a citizenship application. 
but uh, until then, we need to uh, we need to keep uh, pressing forward so that, that we have a fair criminal justice system. And if I can use a very brief brief math equation, and I'm not that great at math, but follow me here. Uh, San Francisco has about 800,000 citizens. About 6% of them are African-American. So that means roughly 50,000 African-Americans live in San Francisco. Let's say that 50% uh, of them are men and 50% are women. So that means about 25,000 African-American males live in San Francisco. Let's say about a third of those males are juveniles. So that leaves 17 or 18,000 adult African-American males in San Francisco. 1,000 of them are in my jail today. One out of every 18 African-American men, adult men, are in my jail today. And that doesn't include the people who are in state prison, who are on probation, or who are on parole. And if that doesn't point out an injustice in our system that needs continual attention and continual fighting, I don't know what does. So. <laughs> So my only uh, request, apart from your uh, attention here today, is that as you uh, get involved in your individual cases, representing your individual clients, try to spend some time addressing the larger system as well, because that system needs help. Thank you very much. In California, the challenge of providing legal representation to poor people who are accused of a crime. And I might add that when we say poor people, I use that term generously because in this economy, there are fewer people who can afford to hire a lawyer. Uh, are represented by a combination of public defenders and uh, contract attorneys as well as uh, private bar representation. The organization uh, which uh, uh, oversees and uh, supports public defenders is the California Public Defenders Association. I'm the only elected public defender in the state. In other uh, counties, the public defender uh, is appointed, uh, which often places public defenders in a difficult position uh, because uh, by not being independently elected, you can be fired. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult dilemma because if you look at district attorneys in every county, they're elected. Public defenders are not. And so it becomes, I'm, I'm sure I'd be fired by now. Uh, <laughs> uh, not, not by the voters, but uh, if it was appointed here in San Francisco. Uh, but the California Public Defenders Association provides that support. It's made up of over 4,000 public defenders and uh, private uh, attorneys. And so uh, with great pleasure, I uh, introduce uh, Mr. Bart Sheila, uh, who is uh, the uh, new president of the California Public Defenders Association. Good morning. It's really an honor to be here to represent the California Public Defenders Association and to welcome you all here. As Jeff said, uh, we have over 4,000 members, not just public defenders, but attorneys in private practice that uh, do appointed cases, and so we really have a diverse group. Um, about, well, nearly 50 years ago, when the United States Supreme Court decided Gideon versus Wainwright, uh, some people said, you know, that's the beginning of public defenders, because for the first time the court said, if you're accused of a crime 
and you can't afford a lawyer, the government must appoint a lawyer for you. The government has to provide you with counsel. And some say that's the beginning of public defenders. Actually, California was ahead of the curve, as we are in many things. Uh, the first public defender office in the state of California uh, started in Alameda County across the bay about 35 years before Gideon. And soon after Alameda, other counties followed Los Angeles and San Francisco within the, the few years that followed. And so we've been providing public, we've had public defenders to provide the services for a long time, since 1929 in Alameda. Um, and I'm, some people think of public well, some people think of defense lawyers as their job is to challenge the government. And, and yes, that's sure, we do that. Uh, but public defenders really do a lot more than that. And here in San Francisco, you have a shining example of a public defender that does more. Uh, many, in many communities, I come from San Diego. In San Diego, one of our local public defenders, not the head guy, but just some guy working in the office, felt it was wrong that all of his homeless clients had all of these warrants and they keep jerking them into court and they'd get booked in the jail. The jail didn't really want them. The jail needed space. But he had all these clients with warrants and said, you know, we need to fix that. Now, we'd previously run a program for uh, homeless veterans to try to help them solve the problem. But this public defender said, you know what, we need to do a homeless court. So he worked with the prosecutors, with the judges, to set up a tent city in Balboa Park in San Diego for homeless people to come in and have their legal issues taken care of. And as long as they were coming anyway, the rest of the community came there to provide the social services and support that those people needed that they weren't getting. But that's not, you know, that's not a traditional public defender job. A traditional public defender job is you represent your client, and when the case is over, it's over, and you move to the next client. But that's not re what real public defenders do. Uh, they worry about the community and worry about making it better for their client. Here in San Francisco, Jeff's office is uh, very active in a reentry program in trying to help the people when they get out of prison not go back. Give them the services they need and help them there. And that doesn't just help them. It helps the entire system. They're not back in jail for nothing parole violations. They're not clogging up the streets. They're getting jobs and they're working and they're contributing to the community. That's what public defenders do. Um, and that works the best in situations where you have a local public defender because the local public defender can respond to what the needs are in your community. We have 58 counties in California. District attorneys in every county, as Jeff said, uh, elected district attorneys, um, prosecuting different kinds of crimes and doing different things. But it's the defense lawyers in those communities that can respond. And it's the public defenders in those communities that can say, you know, this is the kind of program we need to help our clients. Uh, and, and that's the system that really works the best. Jeff mentioned briefly uh, how the, there's a, been a failure of public defenders throughout the United States. And yes, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, Maryland, New York, all of those public defender systems are in crisis. And in many cases, part of the problem is, is the state was running them, which can be a problem. And another problem is, is that in many places, they, matched the, they thought they could match Gideon by just putting a warm body with a bar card sitting at the defense table next to the client uh, and didn't care about the quality of representation. And it's easy for California lawyers because we, I think we practice in a great place where there's a lot of resources for our clients. We read the articles about the other states, and we go, boy, I'm sure glad that doesn't happen here. Well, it does. Two weeks ago, uh, an appellate court reversed uh, a case that came out of Mendocino, the Mendocino Public Defender's Office. This was a juvenile case. The lawyer was representing a kid. 
the lawyer's caseload was so high that the lawyer didn't really have time to work on the case. And unfortunately, in that office, they didn't have the funding for investigators. And so if a lawyer wanted the case investigated, the lawyer left the office and would go interview the witnesses and would do the investigation because they didn't have the money for anything more. Well, that's before all the budget cuts, okay? Because this case was tried two years ago. So the lawyer said, you know, I can't really investigate. If I go investigate this case, I'll do a disservice to all my other clients. So he didn't investigate. He needed some experts. He liked to have a polygraph. He couldn't afford the polygraph because his office didn't have the resources. And so that client was denied justice. Mendocino was denied justice. And that's what's going to happen when you cut the public defender's budget. They won't be able to provide adequate representation. When you eviscerate their office, they won't be able to do the community programs that help the community. And so I hope that today, as you listen to the speakers, uh, you'll learn more about all the public defender does and how desperately they're needed. Thank you. The Bar Association of San Francisco is one of the largest bar associations, I think, in the country. There are over 9,000 attorneys uh, who are part of their network. They have been at the forefront of fighting for individual rights, uh, most uh, recently uh, for the right uh, to marry. Uh, for gay and lesbian and transgender couples. Uh, the president uh, is here today. His name is Russ Roca, and we are, are, are very honored to have you here, Russ. I'll be brief, and we'll get to the beef. My presence here symbolizes the Bar Association of San Francisco's longstanding commitment to quality in the representation for the poor, underrepresented, and disenfranchised population of this city. Our mission is clear. We champion equal access to justice, and through countless programs promote humanity, excellence, and diversity in the legal profession while providing a collective voice for public advocacy. BASF provides approximately 150 of the most highly skilled criminal defense lawyers in the city who partner with the Public Defender's Office to provide quality representation to indigent clients in San Francisco. Our Constitution requires no less. Our notions as a society cannot be asked to settle for less, and yet the proposed budget costs cuts precisely do that. We fully recognize the financial difficulty faced by the city of San Francisco, yet our analysis concludes, and our speakers here this morning will demonstrate, that these cuts will cost the city and cost society far more in the long run. Public defenders, like their counterpart private attorneys who are appointed to represent the city's poor, are talented, selfless, and committed to the public interest. We are here today to support their good work, promote an understanding of their invaluable service, and seek the city's commitment to find the funds essential to its constitutional mandate to do no less. On behalf of the Bar Association of San Francisco, thank you for joining our collective advocacy here this morning in the name of public advocacy. Thank you. Before I introduce our esteemed moderators, I just want to briefly uh, introduce uh, the other public defenders uh, who are here 
today. Um, I see uh, Paulino Duran, who's with the Sacramento Public Defender's Office. Paulino, can you stand for a minute? He is facing a one-third cut in his budget. He does a tremendous job of providing legal representation. Won't be able to do that uh, with that kind of uh, budget cut. We have Mary Greenwood here from the Santa Clara Public Defender's Office. Mary. We have Fern Latham, who is with the Sacramento Conflicts Attorneys Panel. I know Fern is here. Thank you, Fern. John Nitto, he's with the San Mateo Private Defenders Program. John. We have Jim Eager, who is here with the Monterey Public Defenders Office. Jim. And uh, John Abramson, uh, who is here from the Sonoma County Public Defender's Office. So thank you. It's now time uh, for our uh, next panel on the right to counsel. I'm going to first introduce the uh, moderators, but before we do that, we're going to have a brief video. While framing the U.S. Constitution, there was a pointed discussion being held about how much power should be given to the government and how much should be retained by individuals. In response to the many basic human rights abuses throughout English and colonial history, our Founding Fathers introduced the Bill of Rights in 1789, which included the right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The main purpose of the entire Sixth Amendment is to protect the rights of a person who is accused of a crime by the government. The right to counsel clause is considered by some to be the most important right that is protected by the Sixth Amendment. Over 100 years after the Bill of Rights came into effect, a pioneering American woman became a primary force behind improving the criminal defense system. In 1893, Clara Shortridge Foltz, California's first female lawyer, introduced the Foltz Public Defender Bill which proposed a system in which salaried lawyers would devote all or a substantial part of their time to the specialized practice of representing indigent defendants. Foltz's then radical concept was the blueprint for the public defender system which remains in place today. In 1963, nearly 30 years after Clara Foltz's death, the United States Supreme Court in Gideon v. Wainwright unanimously ruled that state courts are required under the Sixth Amendment to provide counsel in criminal cases for defendants unable to afford their own attorneys or lawyers. The Gideon decision created and expanded public defenders throughout the nation and firmly realized the purpose of the Sixth Amendment. Today, as our nation confronts its most severe economic crisis in over 60 years, budget cuts threaten our Founding Fathers' vision and Gideon's promise to protect the rights of the accused under the Sixth Amendment. What are people to do, you know, because most people like myself can't afford a high-end lawyer, you know, to take on their case. My defender, great guy, um, he went to bat for me. Having a felony conviction for something that I didn't do wasn't anything I was interested in and wasn't anything that I was going to plead to. The service that they provided for me was thorough. And to the point, um, he was more confident in going to trial than I was 
but I put it in his hands and we went to trial. We always were in the mindset of this will go to trial. And we were always preparing to go to trial, and it did go to trial. Eventually ended up getting my case dismissed. The jury came back with the just verdicts. And today I stand here a free man. Thank you. I would now like to uh, invite our panel to come up to the stage, and it's my great pleasure to introduce you to our moderators. Uh, Ted Cashman is a uh, private attorney uh, in Berkeley. He has uh, been practicing both federal and state law for many, many years. He's prepared briefs for the United States Supreme Court. He's argued in front of the California Supreme Court and has tried many, many cases. He is also the president of the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, which is the largest organization statewide of private criminal defense attorneys. Um, Judge Doris Cordell is, uh, she's had so many uh, careers, and she only looks like she's 30, and when you meet her, you'll, you'll know what I mean. She uh, is a graduate of Stanford, in 1978, went on to become the uh, academic dean uh, supporting students uh, at, at Stanford. Uh, she was uh, then uh, appointed uh, to a judgeship. She served on the bench for 19 years and uh, retired uh, from the bench and went on to uh, enter politics where she was elected to the Palo Alto uh, City Council. And now she is back again uh, at, at Stanford. Um, but I'm so uh, honored and pleased uh, that they have agreed to moderate uh, this panel, which I think uh, uh, will, uh, I think, give all of us uh, not only a better understanding of how the public needs and should be defended, but how our justice system uh, likewise uh, can be improved. Good morning, everybody. On behalf of California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, it's our great privilege and honor to be a co-sponsor of this very important celebration of justice. I'm here to speak about a problem that jeopardizes our cherished concept of equal justice under law. Simply put, the problem is how to ensure that indigent defendants receive competent legal representation at a time of budgetary cutbacks and increasing caseloads. For the sake of our Constitution, it is a problem we must solve, but we must choose means to that end with great care and with consideration. Otherwise, we may win the game of numbers but lose our sense of justice along the way. Those words were spoken 25 years ago by then Chief Justice Rose Byrd. It was 1984. Our country, our state, was mired in a severe recession. Budgets were slashed, services were slashed, justice was not meted out fairly. You might say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And in one important aspect, you would be totally correct. Then, as now, Concerned citizens informed themselves, joined together, 
and made a difference. That's why we're all here today. We will learn, we will listen, we will speak out, and we will make a difference. And now it's my honor to introduce Judge Cordell. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Oh, that is so weak. Come on, we're here for a purpose today. Good morning, everyone. All right. So let me get this straight. <laughs> Thank you. The day before Judge Henderson was to speak at this summit, he is notified by someone in Washington, D.C., the federal courts, who was apparently notified by somebody in San Francisco that he, Judge Henderson, could not address us. So just so I'm clear, at a public meeting, convened to explain and discuss the constitutional right to representation of indigent defendants, a right established by the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution and the U.S. Supreme Court in its landmark case of Gideon versus Wainwright, a federal judge, a constitutional officer, has been forbidden to talk about this constitutional right. <laughs> Jeff Adachi, you and your public defenders are apparently very important people. <laughs> and and if anyone thinks that by shutting down our keynote speaker, they can stop the message that we bring to San Francisco and California today, they are sadly mistaken. Judge Henderson, in your inability to speak, we have heard you loud and clear. <laughs> About how we'll proceed today, we will have our first four panelists uh, pose questions to them, and they're going to talk. We're going to take a five-minute break, and during this time when they are speaking, you will be handed, I believe, cards. And if you have questions that come up, in your mind, fill them out. During this break, we'll collect the cards, and then we will pose the questions to the first four panelists. And then we'll repeat the same process with the second four panelists. We thank you for turning off your cell phones, and as questions come up, make sure you write them down, and there will be people there to hand you uh, the cards. All right, so joining us, any, first, anyone who has had the occasion to be involved in the criminal justice system knows that lawyers in criminal courts are necessities, not luxuries. That was one of the most important messages that the U.S. Supreme Court gave us in the Gideon case. And yet, we are gathered here today because the court's message that government has a constitutional obligation to provide lawyers for those who cannot afford them appears to be falling on deaf ears. Joining us are eight giants in the world of public defense. They are here because the crisis we are facing, and I mean we, all of us are facing, is huge and it's potentially disastrous. So let's get down to business. We start with history because history is our best teacher. And who better to give us the backdrop of the public defender movement than a teacher extraordinaire, Professor Emerita Barbara Babcock. If you, if, you, if you Google 
women's legal history, the first thing that will come up is Professor Babcock's website, and I encourage you to do so. Professor Babcock taught at Stanford Law School, led the civil division of the Justice Department under President Carter, and in the 1970s created the public defender system in Washington, D.C. As importantly, she can tell a good story. <laughs> Professor Babcock, tell us a story. From whence did the public defender come? Today, I'm here to give you the history of public defense uh, in this country and to urge you that we in California should feel a special interest and obligation to live up to the proud tradition that started here. More than 100 years ago, Clara Foltz, a San Francisco lawyer, called for a public defender to match the public prose prosecutor. On a platform with eminent legal scholars, judges, and practitioners at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, Foltz declared that no one should pay for justice in a land that boasts that justice should be free. She brought with her to that platform 15 years of experience in the criminal courts of San Francisco. In 1878, Foltz had become the first woman lawyer in the state. Now, at first, people were unwilling to hire a woman, uncertain about the effects of prejudice on the other risks of litigation. But poor people charged with crime were more accepting. They had uh, no choice. <laughs> they flocked to her office. Uh, other lawyers sent Foltz their pauper cases, as they were called, and courts appointed her to defend. Whenever she would go to court, she would often pick up uh, uh, a case while she was there uh, by order of the court. So she had a tremendous amount early on of uh, criminal defense experience. Uh, and remember, she was arguing to all male juries at this time. Often she would be the only woman uh, in the courthouse uh, when she was defending a case. And when she went to court on behalf of her indigent clients, she saw the unfairness and injustice which others missed or overlooked. She said they were deadened in feeling by constant contact. But she was new. She was there as an outsider, a woman, as an underdog, representing the indigent accused. And she described the scene to the jurisprudence at the Congress of... Um, uh, jurisprudence and law reform, the most eminent professors in the country, instead of talking about uh, a subject that would raise her own prestige, uh, the, the rule of law or a speech, another speech she was giving about immediate judicial review being necessary on constitutional questions, uh, instead of a speech like that, she chose to tell these, uh, the top people in the profession, what was going on in the baseline criminal courts, which they were far removed from. Uh, it was a shocking speech uh, in the middle of, of this scholarly um, uh, discourse here, and it created a sensation. She described the scene. Innumerable innocent boys and girls, men and women, robbed by shysters, neglected by irresponsible court appointees, pleading guilty or going to trial without an adequate defense, in jail, or even if acquitted, impoverished and embittered by the process. 
She brought forth her solution, a radical idea at the time, and when you think about it, it's a radical idea today. For every public prosecutor, there should be a public defender chosen in the same way and paid out of the same fund. She described the public defender as a powerful, resourceful figure to counter and correct the prosecutor, to balance the presentation of evidence, and to make the proceedings orderly and just. Her defender, see, she's not, this is not just an imaginary character. Her defender would engage the law's presumption of innocence on a deep level. What do you do about defending the guilty? Nobody's guilty. Everyone is presumed innocent and must be treated uh, by the law as the law presumes them to be. Her defender, and she said this from the very beginning in the founding document, uh, would investigate every case for favorable evidence would plea bargain with more than the defendant's willingness to give up his trial. If the defender went to trial, he would summon witnesses, seek expert testimony, and prepare to cross-examine. In constructing this fixture, figure, Foltz had no models. No defender like the one she described had ever existed anywhere. You see, there are no common law precedents for the idea of a public defender because in ancient England, there was no right to defense counsel at all. The prosecutor and the judge were supposed to attend to the rights of the accused. Uh, and, uh, but that old defensive machinery had fallen away. And in his hour of greatest need, the accused person who could not afford counsel was left, she said, in the savage state of self-defense. She drafted a model statute and campaigned for a public defender at the same time that she was urging votes for women. Public defense and woman suffrage became connected in California through the person of Clara Foltz and more generally. Women campaigned and said a public defender was the kind of thing that women would do with their votes that would be established once women had political equality. Women won the vote in 1911. They cast their first ballots in 1912. And in Los Angeles, with their votes, the first public defender office was passed in 1912, established in 1913, and opened its doors in 1914. Then uh, between the, the, pub, the Los Angeles public defender was a tremendous success right from the beginning. It had the effect of eliminating uh, the, the shysters from the courthouse, uh, of uh, improving the situation uh, in which people were pleading guilty uh, without any defense at all. And, and it became the model. A number of public defenders were passed throughout the country between 1914 and about the end of the 1920s. In 1921, and one of these was the San Francisco office in 1916. Uh, in 1921, the Foltz Defender Bill, as it became known, was passed uh, to enable uh, countywide option public defenders all over the state. Uh, and, and that's still the basis of the public defender system in California. Seventy years after Clara Foltz spoke to the Congress of Jurisprudence and Law Reform at the World Fairs, at the World Fair, uh, and, and argued that defense lawyers were not luxuries but necessities in criminal cases, the United States Supreme Court held as much in Gideon. 
and it was after Gideon that the public defender became the main channel for the representation of those who cannot afford counsel. But even though it has become an accepted part of the legal landscape, the institution of public defense has never been really understood or indeed had the complete support of the public, its elected representatives, or even, I would suggest, the profession as a whole. There's no lobby for public defense, uh, and no one really understands uh, why uh, the government should pay for a real defense uh, for those that it accuses. When Foltz first started campaigning for a public defender, the New York Times called it the strange project the strange project of a female lawyer. And another leading paper said it was ridiculous for the state to prosecute with one hand and defend with the other the violation of its own statutes. Such attitudes underlie the idea that a cut to the public defender is like cutting any other agency. It will just serve fewer people uh, and, and, uh, and that doesn't make any difference. This is just a great idea to bring together what is in effect and may become a lobby for public defense, to explain the function and needs of the system uh, for public defense as well as to the individual accused's need for adequate counsel. Clara Foltz would be pleased and proud that we have come together today to discuss, understand, save, and advance the movement that she founded. On her behalf and her memory, I thank you for your attendance and your attention. Thank you, uh, Professor Babcock, for that inspiring presentation. I, I noted a couple lessons we can all glean from that. First, the Public Defender's Office was conceived by a woman. Second, it took 21 hard years for it to come into being, and then only after women got the vote. And third, it looks to me like there's at least half an auditorium filled with women in this place. So women have and will play a key role in our search for justice in this country. Our next panelist is Richard Goman. Mr. Goman is the current director of the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. His previous incarnations include service as an assistant federal public defender for the Eastern District of Virginia. That's hard work, believe me. Executive director for Virginia's Indigent Defense Commission and a public defender in the state of Virginia at, at local level. He's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Mr. Goman will talk about the current crisis in public defense. And my question, sir, is we've heard a lot about the crisis confronting Jeff Adachi here in San Francisco and his office. Is this an isolated example or is the problem of a greater context? Well, thank you. Uh, the, the problem is, is a much greater context. First, I want to say I'm from the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. I'm here from Washington, D.C., but I had absolutely nothing to do with keeping Judge Henderson from speaking today. 
at the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, we are working all over the country on issues very similar to those that, uh, that are confronting the people here in San Francisco and your public defender, Jeff Adachi. Um, and while um, Mr. Kassman's earlier comments about the, the way, uh, the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same is certainly accurate in terms of um, the, the crises that are, follow, that, that are occurring all across the country, things are different now. Uh, we do have crises in public defense all around the country, but things have changed. On March 26th, the House Judiciary Committee, that is the United States House of Representatives Judiciary Committee, their subcommittee on crime, terrorism, and homeland security held a hearing on the crisis of indigent defense. It was entitled, Representation of Indigent Defendants in Criminal Cases, a Constitutional Crisis in Michigan and Other States. And that one was focused on Michigan because there had recently been a, uh, a, a statewide assessment done by uh, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association in Michigan. And the, the, the findings uh, came to the attention of, of members of the House of Representatives, and they were shocked. They were shocked to find how poorly the public defender um, mechanisms were working in the state of Michigan. So they held a hearing uh, to look at Michigan, but also to look at the wider context and uh, to learn about the indigent defense crises that are occurring all around the country. Uh, we are expecting a hearing, uh, another hearing uh, before that same House committee at the beginning of June, and uh, there are hopes for a third uh, hearing. So what's going on? Um, this, this, we're having a, a, a wonderful celebration of justice here. Uh, there was a hearing in, the, uh, in Congress on indigent defense. What's going on around the country? Um, indigent defense has actually been in crisis for years. Advocates have been talking about the fact that uh, people go to court every day uh, without adequate counsel, that is, an, an attorney who does not have the time and the tools and the resources to properly represent their clients. And there are places in this country where people go to court, face criminal charges, who do not have the ability to, to hire an attorney, who do not get counsel at all. Over 40 years after Gideon, there are still places in this country where people go to court, face criminal charges without counsel at all. That's been happening for years. But as I think this very public um, celebration of justice and examination of the problem demonstrates, this problem is not simply being talked about anymore between lawyers and between advocates. It's becoming a very public issue. We have, and, and I'm, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit, um, but just to give you a sense, we have now national organizations that are bringing lawsuits based on the problems of indigent defense. We have law firms who are bringing lawsuits. We have public defenders who are standing up and saying, no more. We will not allow our office to represent people if we do not have the capacity and the resources to do it. There are large-scale assessments being done in states across the country that are, that are shining a light on public defense issues. Um, and national studies are occurring 
all around the country by national organizations that are shining a light on the obscenely high rates at which our country incarcerates people in general and the racial disparities that are brought, that, that, that our criminal justice imposes upon those who are incarcerated. National standards have been created, such as the American Bar Association's 10 principles of a public defense delivery system, so that for the first time we have a, an objective national measure from which we can look at public defense systems and, and talk about what are the requirements that are needed for, uh, uh, for quality public defense and how do we measure whether public defense systems are measuring up to that. We also have um, the uh, 10 core principles for providing quality delinquency representation through public defense delivery systems that were issued by the National Juvenile Defender Center and the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. Another way of measuring, this time focused on juvenile delinquency problems and how are systems actually showing that. Up here, um, can, can I, we actually go back a couple of slides? Because I'd like to just take a minute um, to talk about, here's the, the first slide that um, talks about lawsuits. Um, and and I'm, I'm bringing this to you to get a sense of, number one, the fact that you're not alone here in San Francisco, that indigent defense crises are happening all around the country. And also to give, to, to, to provide a sense of the fact that communities are often losing their, their ability to control their own fate when it comes to examining indigent defense. That when communities don't get together and, uh, and ensure quality public defense services, that other people are starting to come in and do it for them. And that's one of the things that's, that's different. Here we're looking at states where lawsuits have been brought by outside organizations. On uh, Montana, Connecticut, uh, in a county system in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and throughout the state of Michigan, um, the ACLU has brought lawsuits shining a light on the lack of quality public defense. And, and, and here we're talking about really severe, uh, se severe disparities in the way public defense are being um, provided with the way that they should be. The NACDL, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, has brought suits in the state of Ohio, in the state of Louisiana, and they have threatened uh, lawsuits in Virginia. Uh, Virginia was forced to, to um, make significant improvements in their uh, public defense systems under threat of lawsuit by the NACDL. In the state of Georgia, the Southern Center for Human Rights uh, has brought suit. In Quitman County, Mississippi, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund brought suit. And law firms have brought suits in both New York State and in Grant County, Washington. Uh, so the, the problems of indigent defense are not going to stay homegrown problems for long. If they are not addressed, if there's not significant public support for quality public defense, other organizations, other uh, folks are going to come in and, and shine the light uh, on, the, on this for the community if they're not dealing with themselves. In addition, um, public defenders themselves have taken on the mantle. For years, public defenders um, simply accepted 
in many places, not, not all over the country certainly, but in many places, public defenders simply accepted more cases, accepted more cases, they saw it as their job. Now public defenders are saying no more. And in Mojave County, uh, Arizona, in Miami, Dade County, Florida, in Knox County, Tennessee, in the state of Kentucky, and in Cook County, Illinois, public defenders have stood up and said no more. We are not going to simply continue operating. And they have either brought lawsuits themselves or they have begun to litigate the issue of whether their public defender offices can continue to accept cases. And then we have, in, in addition to indigent defense lawsuits by outside organizations, in addition to, um, to public defenders, we have statewide reform efforts. And here in the, in the, in the olive uh, labels, you see um, jurisdictions where there actually have been um, significant efforts and where statewide reform is actually happening or about to happen. And those are in Montana, North Dakota, Louisiana. Nevada is currently undergoing such a process. And there are other states where these, these efforts are just beginning, Ohio, New York, Michigan, and Idaho. Um, and I, I, I bring that to you as some context for what's going on here to assure you that there are other efforts going on where the community has not come together like you are here today. Um, one of the ways to avoid these kinds of things happening in your community is for community leaders to start thinking about public defense in a different way. Uh, we heard just a moment ago that one of the problems with public defense has always been that there isn't a real, that there isn't a constituency, a political constituency that can fight for it. Um, and that's certainly true. Often the folks who need public defense services are the ones least able to fight for it. They are the folks, uh, they are the poor, they are often folks with significant uh, handicaps and disabilities within their community. They don't have uh, the political capital to fight for a public defense service. So public defense um, needs to be thought of differently at a governmental level. And I would suggest that the way to do that is to think about it in terms of public safety. When, when public, def public defenders, public defense is a service that your government provides that keeps people safe. When your public defense systems do not work, people get hurt. And if you think about public, uh, a, a public defense service as uh, similar to, uh, to governmental service in, in building a building, a building a bridge. When government does that, they think about quality first. They think about standards. They think about what do we need in order to build this, this building or this bridge, in order to make it safe. They look at standards and they look at codes to determine what is needed. Only once they've figured out what is needed to make it safe do they then look to how to do it most economically. Public defense is a very similar kind of service. If it's not done well, people get hurt. Innocent people go to prison. People get shuttled through criminal justice systems without adequate protections. First, government needs to look to quality and then how to do it economically. And if we don't pay attention to quality, then the things that are happening around the country will be happening here in San Francisco. Uh, thank you, and I look forward to talking to you later.
Thank you, Richard, for those informative comments. Uh, so it's clearly a nationwide crisis and a nationwide problem. Here today, our community is coming together to raise consciousness and to address it, to make our voices heard, and perhaps we can help lead the entire country in the right direction towards justice. Our next speaker is Michael Judge. He is the chief public defender for the county of Los Angeles. That means that Mr. Judge manages 40 offices, 40 offices and 750 lawyers. I need to talk to you about organizational skills after this. <laughs> in April 2004, Mr. Judge received the California Public Defenders Association Program of the Year Award for juvenile justice programs that facilitate special education advocacy, mental health treatment, developmental disability services, and substance abuse treatment for children. My goodness. Last year, Mr. Judge served on the California Senate Commission for the Fair Administration of Justice. He's going to speak to us today about the ethical duties of public defenders who are overwhelmed by budget cuts and caseloads. And my question, Michael, is this. Have you in your office had any experience with reducing caseloads and being forced to decline appointments to cases? Michael Judge. Well, I'm very pleased to be here and also delighted that uh, there is a television audience for this because this is something that's important to people beyond those who are our clients and those who provide the service that public defenders are responsible for. This is crucial to the community. Uh, in my instance, uh, my office is actually in the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Justice Center in Los Angeles. It's a 19-story building um, in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Uh, it was designed at 18 stories, but then they realized they forgot space for the public defender. <laughs> and that's how I got to sit on top of the building looking down on City Hall, the mayor, and everybody else. <laughs> now, the fact that we are the oldest, the largest, and the most well-resourced with a budget of approximately $175 million only begins the story. In 13 out of the last 15 years, I have declined to accept cases that would create an excessive workload, not only for my lawyers, but my investigators and paralegals and licensed clinical social workers. They all are critical in providing the service to our clients, and in fact, this has happened in Los Angeles for at least 35 years when faced with excessive workloads. But you have to know what are the underpinnings that justify this and, and how can this be done and how does the Board of Supervisors deal with it when this happens. And, you know, I think that one of the things is it's so unfortunate when this only comes up at budget time. This is something that should be handled year-round on a continuous basis, and, and that's what we do in Los Angeles. But I'm not just here as the L.A. County Public Defender. I'm representing the California Public Defenders Association on this panel. There are guidelines under which chief defenders, as well as assigned council administrators uh, and contract defenders, must operate under the state bar 
These were promulgated in 2006. And I'm only going to go over two of them, but they are critical, and I think you'll see why it's so important. Institutional public defender offices like mine and like Jeff's, they are departments of county government. That's recognized by the guidelines. And therefore, they have to be managed in compliance with county charters, county policy, county ordinances. However, the guidelines provide the most fundamental and overriding obligation of institutional public defenders, whether elected or appointed, is to properly represent each individual client. And should an unavoidable conflict between those duties and that as a member of county government come into conflict, it's the role of the public defender representing an indigent client that supersedes every other loyalty. This is what we operate under as chief defenders. We must comply with these standards. This is non-negotiable. The client comes first when there is such a conflict. Also, the guidelines go on. What happens if you're getting pressured to take more cases and still take a big budget cut? And the guidelines provide the institutional public defender must resist any efforts by others to compromise the core duty to the client. And failure by the defender to carry out the responsibility could result in the suspension of the right to practice law or disbarment. Now, interestingly, that guideline is supported by a situation in which a chief defender was advocating for the necessary resources to properly represent the client. The Board of Supervisors took umbrage at that and attempted to discipline the chief defender. The Court of Appeal ruled in favor of the chief defender. This is something that's not only supported in the guidelines, but in the law as decided by the appellate courts. The guideline even goes further. The institutional defender must be de as determined if the attacks on the independents originate from federal uh, sources or law schools or the media, but also the defender must resist it if it comes from the county or local government. And that's where it usually comes from when you're in a crisis. The next guideline that I'm going to mention talks about what happens when a chief defender determines that the incoming caseload, together with the existing caseload and workload, would exceed the capacity of the staff. The chief defender must refuse. And if they don't refuse, they can be disbarred. And will they be disbarred? Oh, yes, it has happened in California. A chief defender who overloaded a single deputy public defender, which caused her to end up providing inadequate service as a result of breaking down under the pressure, despite the fact that the chief defender had no record of discipline, 25-year unblemished record as, a, as the chief defender, was initially suspended from practice placed on probation, and then disbarred because he did not resolve the matter timely. This is what Jeff Adachi and other chief defenders, 
have to operate under. And there's no getting around it. There can be no indemnification from the Board of Supervisors for that. So it makes sense. It should make sense to everyone that the chief defender is the one who has to make the call as to whether or not the workload is approaching the point where either they have to have more resources or they have to decline some of the incoming workload. Someone has to keep an eye on it. And who's better situated than the chief defender who's getting all the data, all the information, and all the reports in a, on a real-time basis? It's sound management. It's fiscal responsibility. This allows the chief defender to advise the board of supervisors of the situation so that the board can then balance out resources to make sure that the public defender is not overwhelmed, to level the playing field. Why? A lot of reasons. One, to avoid legal malpractice for which the county is liable. To avoid overcrowding the jail because the cases can't be handled in a timely fashion, leading to premature releases or lawsuits of a constitutional dimension. To avoid workers' compensation liability as a result of stressing out the staff with an excessive workload. To avoid the unnecessary retrials that surely will have to occur because if a defender and the defender's staff is inadequate for the workload, then people are going to get convicted that shouldn't get convicted, or they'll get convicted of things that they shouldn't get convicted of. And I haven't even gotten to the human dimension yet, of course. When a situation is set up like that, what happens is that judges will start refusing to appoint the public defender because the public defender will not be able to assure the judge that they can prepare the case in a timely fashion. Judges will relieve the public defender from cases in which the public defender may already be entirely prepared. That's very costly because then private lawyers get appointed at a much higher rate. Also, the question of avoiding mischief. If the chief defender isn't really in control, then others, others who may have cynical motives, end up taking over. You may have judges and prosecutors who want to see the public defender off the case. They want to face somebody else less prepared and less skillful, or maybe somebody that will contribute to a campaign. So you get to the, the, the I think, the most important point, though, is this. These are people, people who have been arrested under a system that the politicians have created in which instead of using the Surgeon General to deal with health care issues, the Director of Mental Health to deal with mental health issues, instead they try to arrest themselves out of this and then want to deprive people of the right to counsel. Well, The line is drawn here. The buck stops here. Chief defenders can't allow it. Jeff can't allow it. Thank you. I told you all this was a powerhouse panel. We have more to come. Three things. The aides who are working here are collecting cards. 
you see Richard Goldman sliding out. He'll be back in. He has a business commitment, but he will be back this afternoon. Thank you, Richard. So cards are being collected, and after our next panelist, we'll do the Q&A. Innocence is defined in Webster's as freedom from guilt or sin, blamelessness, freedom from legal guilt of a particular crime or offense. The public's thinking that innocent people could ever be convicted in our criminal courts has gone from not possible to very possible. Today, there are more than 50 innocence projects throughout the world, in Australia, in Canada, in England, in New Zealand, and here in the United States, all of whom form the Innocence Network. Their work is the exoneration of the innocent, those individuals erroneously convicted of crimes. Professor Cookie Ridolfi knows all about innocence because she was a founding member of the Innocence Network and the first president of its board. And she, in addition to her work as a law professor at Santa Clara University, is the founder of the Northern California Innocence Project and is its director. Professor Ridolfi, in these grim economic times, everybody has to sacrifice. The mayor of San Francisco has called for across the board 25% budget cuts, which include the public defender's office. So, Professor Rodolfi, why all the fuss? Why shouldn't the public defender's office be treated exactly the same as other city departments? I'm not from San Francisco, so I don't know all the details. Does that include the emergency rooms of hospitals? Um, well, I guess um, one of the things I want to say is I, Michael started with uh, the point that this is not just about the rights of the accused uh, who public defenders represent. It's about uh, other people. It's about the victims uh, in the crimes that innocent people were convicted of, victims who uh, testified against people who were wrongfully convicted and then had to have to live with the guilt of that and, and how devastating that is to them. It's also about the victims of the uh, the, the guilty people who were preyed on in the years that the innocent person spent in prison. So it's about all those people and their families. Um, it's been 20 years since the first DNA exoneration. And since Michael was talking about um, um, the health institutes um, and we started with the emergency room, let me say that, that uh, the DNA exonerations over these 20 years has been like an MRI of the justice system. We no longer have to guess what ails us. We know, because by a post-mortem analysis of these cases, we've been able to identify the causes of wrongful conviction. And we now, because of that, we know how to treat them. And we're not alone in reaching that conclusion. Two months ago, the National Academy of Sciences uh, published this long-awaited report. Um, it, it was very exciting. It was something that was uh, conducted over several years uh, by nationally known experts in the legal field and the scientific field. There were congressional hearings. Uh, there was an enormous amount of resources put into, into doing this report. And the idea was to go and let's say now there's been so many ex DNA exonerations, we need a group to go and look at forensic sciences and determine uh, are there problems, what are the problems. The conclusion uh, in the report is that with the exception of DNA 
test DNA evidence. Every forensic science method has, that is relied on in court by judges and juries and, and, and is the foundation of convi convictions, are, none of those things are based or rooted in reliable, sound, or truly tested scientific data. None. Um, it's pretty astounding. Uh, here, this is, this is another, uh, uh, this is something from the report. Lawyers and judges have insufficient training and background in scientific methodology, and they fail to fully comprehend the approaches employed by different forensic science disciplines and the reliability of forensic science evidence that is offered at trial. Such training is essential because any checklist of admissibility of scientific or technical testimony is imperfect. Um, and it goes on, and I would recommend to all of you uh, to pick it up and, and read it. Their comprehensive report and 20 years of researching DNA exoneration cases have provided us with a lot of information. It all points in the same direction. To protect innocent people from wrongful conviction, we need more resources at the front end, at the, before trial, pre-trial and trial, not post-conviction when the time that innocence projects get involved, because by then it's too late. It's too late because, first of all, because the burden of proving innocence is ten times greater at that point, because there's no right to counsel, and because there are zero resources available to an inmate who's trying to prove innocence at that point. Right now, the justice system needs a serious infusion of additional resources. From the point of view of anybody concerned about, about innocent people um, and changing, you know, changing the continuation of, of conviction of innocent people, a 25% cut in the public defender's budget is really unthinkable. To address problems of wrongful conviction, there are no shortcuts. Every, anybody in here who's a public defender or works in a public defender's office knows this really well. There are no substitutes for the time, the resources it takes to adequately train, investigate, and defend a case in the way you have to do it to really address uh, the concerns that, that, that uh, have been demonstrated to be the problems caused by wrong, that cause wrongful conviction. Prosecutions are based on evidence, due process, and constitutional protections. Until relatively recently, most people believe that that meant that our justice system was working. Even after DNA exonerations began to appear in the newspapers, front page of the papers, day after day after day, many people still had confidence in the system. In 1993, after four years of DNA exonerations, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor expressed great confidence in the system. She said, we have a high degree of confidence in our justice system because our Constitution offers unparalleled protections against convicting the innocent. But the evidence kept mounting, and things started to change, until there was no reasonable person who could deny the seriousness of the problem. Even at the highest levels of our government, things were changing. So by 2001, she made another statement. Then Sandra Day O'Connor said, more often than we want to recognize, innocent people are being convicted. I teach in a law school. Sometimes I tell my students we should call it fact school because facts are the most important part of the case. Who did it? In theory, our justice system is a truth-seeking process. And in theory, the risk in a criminal case is borne by the prosecutor. But in reality, that's not really true. 
From the outset, criminal defendants are disadvantaged. For every criminal defendant, unlike a prosecutor, a defendant doesn't have access to the crime scene evidence, nor the investigative resources of the police who are there available to prosecutors to follow leads, develop evidence, and make decisions about the direction of a case. For an innocent person, it is much harder. If you're innocent, chances are you've never been to the crime scene, you've never, you don't know the victim, you don't know any of the players, you don't really know anything. Generally speaking, people who are innocent have really no information to tell their lawyer to help them Help, to help the lawyer investigate their cases. So in those cases, it puts even more of a burden on the, on the lawyers and the investigators uh, to work uh, to, to, to help an innocent person uh, prove their innocence. If you're innocent, you may be lucky enough to have an alibi. But based on jury research, we know that jurors tend not to believe alibis because, of course, you were probably with your mother or with your friends, where most people are, or your dog ate your homework. Um, and <clears throat> I'm being told it's time already, geez. Um, <clears throat> well, let me just say, um, wrongful convictions are increasing every day. There are 237 as of today, nine in California. In California, of those nine wrongful DNA, DNA uh, exonerations, Five women, have, of, of those nine DNA exonerations, in six of the cases, the actual perpetrators, while those innocent people were in prison, five women were raped, and 15 women were murdered, including a, a, a young girl from Orange County. In three cases, the suspects have never been identified and are still, uh, are, are still out there who knows, preying on someone else. Um, we, we know what are the causes of wrongful conviction, and we know what to do about it. And at, at the question and answer period, I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm sorry I took so much time. Thank you, Cookie Rodolfi. You've proved once again when the topic is wrongful convictions, there is unfortunately way too much to say about it. You know, uh, Governor Bill Richardson in New Mexico recently signed a bill banning the, the capital punishment, the death penalty in New Mexico. And he noted at that time that since 1976, there have been 130 exonerations of men and women who have been on death row in this country. And that's an injustice that we cannot stand. Are, are we going to push ahead here or? Okay. All right. We're going to we're going to take a few minutes here to answer, ask some questions okay. for panelists. Here's the key, panelists. You've got to answer in 30 seconds. Seriously, because we have four panelists. Just keep an eye on the time. It is five minutes till noon. We go till 12:30. We still have four panelists from which to hear, from whom to hear. So we'll ask a few of these. You see, we have a lot of cards here. We'll just ask a few. We need you to keep your answers brief. First question. In a time when government money is scarce, wouldn't it be wiser to fund anti-poverty efforts rather than public defenders to catch people at the front end rather than wait until they're already entangled in the criminal justice system? Why or why not? Anybody want to take it? Just grab it. And it doesn't have to be our first four. Just I think the anti-poverty efforts is a strategy, great idea. But people are getting arrested every day and prosecuted every day. So what would happen to them? 
So we're in a crisis. We have to provide the immediate service, but we also have to plan long-term by having the anti-poverty. So there's a tactic and a strategy, basically. Next question. What can we do to help? Well, I think panels like this are helpful, especially because it's on television. This has to go out to the general community, especially to people who are high-propensity voters and to the organizations that they tend to belong to. We need to be out there talking to them. I encourage my people to do it. I try to do it, but we have to do more of it. We have to get our message out there. Professor Rodolfi, what is most commonly the reason for wrongful conviction? What can the citizens, non-lawyers, do to prevent wrongful convictions? The single greatest cause of wrongful conviction is mistaken eyewitness identification, accounting for 80% of wrongful convictions, um, although there are multiple factors that tend to be involved in one case. One very important thing that I would say about what the public should do is public should know is to, there needs to be more public information about the fact that this occurs and how great a problem it is. I said earlier there's 237 DNA exonerations. Nine, over 95% of those cases involve sexual assault. Sexual assault represents 3.4% of all criminal cases. We find that fewer than half of the case, that 40% of the cases, when we go to look for DNA evidence in those sexual assault cases, the evidence has since been lost, destroyed, or too deteriorated to test. So the reality is that those 237 cases are coming from a pool of fewer than 2% of all criminal cases. What does that mean about the other 98% of the cases? The only difference is that those people don't have the benefit of DNA testing. The problem is enormous. What if the chief defender does not protect his or her staff from caseloads that are too heavy? What recourse do individual defenders have? Well, I think that uh, individual defenders obviously can complain about that to the state bar. They could complain to the Board of Supervisors. The Board of Supervisors ultimately is they're going to have to back up uh, the liability with county funds. So, uh, I mean, I think that ordinarily it's unlikely a chief defender would do that because of the personal financial liability being disbarred. But if, if they're really intransigent, then that's what should happen. Report them to the state bar, report them to the Board of Supervisors, get them in hot water. Michael Judge, has your office ever had to withdraw from complex cases? If so, what was the alternative? And if you could provide an alternative solution, what would it be? We have not had to withdraw. The whole idea here is to anticipate what the workload is going to be and provide for it. You have to have a system in place that anticipates that, and then you get the resources in a timely fashion, or you decline to accept the case at the outset. That's what the guidelines provide. That's what we do. I have declined 21,000 cases in a single year, but not one case that we go back to the court and say, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. We don't abandon clients. No defender should. When a public defender says no more, how does that affect the client? Well, the client ends up with a lawyer um, appointed by the court, paid for by the county. Uh, I can no longer then uh, assure the quality of the work. Uh, I have no access to what's going on once that happens. And unfortunately, I, I know what happens. The complaints go way up because the complaints come to me because they think they are public defenders because they didn't pay for them. In fact, they're not public defenders. Um, and 
you know, it, obviously it's a terrible problem. That's why public defenders should be properly funded, and then you won't have those things happening. Why now? According to the Chronicle, the public defender budget is the lowest. Why? Shouldn't the DA and PD budgets be the same? You know, <laughs> I think they should be equivalent for what they do. It may be that, you know, the DA is prosecuting some cases against private lawyers. They're doing some things that are in the nature of investigation. However, in my case, I face 10 separate prosecuting agencies, not just the DA. I do 50,000 more cases a year in misdemeanors than the DA does because of those 10 other prosecuting agencies. So the bottom line is I still don't get as much as the DA from the county. And as a result, as I said, in 13 out of the 15 years, there are times when I have refused cases. And in fact, I'm at will. Five members of the Board of Supervisors meet every Tuesday. I have to count to three every Tuesday, but 15 years, and it's never happened. Even when the CEO tried to get rid of me because in a budget cut, I refused to accept all of the caseload that was coming in. She left, they got rid of her, and I still am there. Can I, can I just add that, sure, as a matter of fact, the state of California does not fund uh, innocence work at all. Um, the governor has repeatedly vetoed all the bills that went through that offered any support at all for this work. So if you're wrongfully convicted in this state, you're on your own. So you asked what can be done. There's a lot to be done. Uh, we have time for no more questions. And FYI, there was an excellent op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle on Monday authored by Professor Bar Barbara Babcock and me about the budget issue with respect to the Public Defender's Office. So I hope you'll read it. We're now going to move on to our second part of the program. Okay. Kimberly Thomas Rapp is the Director of the Office of Law and Public Policy for, Equal Justice, for the Equal Justice Society, a national strategy group reshaping jurisprudence through progressive legal theory, public policy, and practice. Before joining EJS, Ms. Thomas Rapp was a civil rights attorney specializing in matters pertaining to education and disability rights. Ms. Thomas Rapp will speak to us about institutional racism in the criminal justice system, another rather large topic. Kimberly? Will budget cuts in indigent defense services have an especially adverse and disproportionate consequence in our minority populations? That's my question. And the answer to the question is yes, and I'm going to come stand up over there. Mr. Yes, please. B. Roberts. Tactics to terrorize poor people. Hey, Daryl. I figured I'd better come get the girls. You know D got custody. D's in jail. 
Meanwhile, federal money goes to the counties that convict the most people, and plea bargains are aggressively pushed to hasten those convictions. If you don't take the plea, we will prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. 16 to 25 years. I can't do that. I mean, what am I going to do about my kids? So, Ms. Roberts, what has happened to you and others here in Melody is simply wrong. communities of color will be tremendously impacted by cuts to the public defender budget. At the Equal Justice Society, we do an enormous amount of work fighting institutionalized racism, and the public defender is an important and critical part of that fight. This film clip that uh, was just shown is a movie called American Violet, and I encourage all of you, uh, if and when you have the opportunity, to check it out and to see the full film. It is an example of what is sadly not an exception in communities around the country. And it is based on the real life story of a 24-year-old African-American uh, woman who lives in a community in Texas. And, and actually, I should say that differently, because some folks understand that story to really be about a young, black, single female with four kids living in the projects. And for many people, that communicates certain stereotypes. It associates that person with particular stereotypes. It makes it much easier to believe that they are guilty of certain crimes, particularly drug crimes. And this particular woman was charged as a drug dealer, though there was no evidence of that at all available. And she was offered a plea deal and you know plea deals, and please um, strike the D on the word plea up there, but you know plea deals are offered and folks are told this will help you get home faster if you just plead down to this. You don't want to stay and fight because if you stay and fight you're going to stay in jail. And so she was offered a plea deal and she herself decided that she was going to stop and fight the system and hold the system accountable. And so public defenders and defense attorneys help in the effort to hold the law and to hold the system accountable. And without these folks, uh, people in communities of color and in our larger community can be railroaded, railroaded by those with power. And when we think about um, what the power is, right, certainly we have laws in place. 
And laws are very important. We need to have them in place, but they don't implement themselves. People implement them. And so we need to make sure that people with power to implement laws are being fair and that they're being equitable. And so the public defender is critical in ensuring that there is equity and that there is fairness in determining who is targeted by criminal prosecutions. When are those folks targeted? for criminal, criminal prosecution, and how are they targeted for criminal prosecution? And so when we think about how to address institutionalized racism, and by that we mean the kind of discrimination and differential treatment that has become a part of the status quo, that is a part of the system. And so when we think about how the public defender really helps to challenge those sorts of issues in our criminal justice system, one of the things they do is help to pay attention to data and trends. And what, what the thing about it is we don't just let folks tell us that they're doing a good job, right? There are some DA, DAs and members of law enforcement that in fact do a fantastic job. Uh, some of them get it right. Some of them do better than others, but the public defender helps to ensure that they do their best because people's lives are on the line. And so when we think about looking at the data, the questions that are raised is why is it that Native Americans are arrested at one and a half times the rate of whites? And why is it that that number increases? Why is there a larger disparity in arrest rates when it comes down to violent and public order offenses, and a lot of that has to do with where resources are concentrated, where law enforcement is, is concentrated, and what sorts of offenses we associate with certain types of folks, and that we want to criminalize them for simply living and existing in their communities. Uh, another set of data and trends that's important to take a look at is the incarceration of Latinos. Um, around the country, we've got more than six million people in the criminal justice system, two million are in prisons, and 70% of those folks are minorities. That's a problem. That ought to be a problem for all of us, not just communities of color. One in three of those folks are Latinos, and Latinos are four times as likely as whites to be sentenced to prison. So when we think about the role of the public defender, it is to help those communities to have a voice in the law and in the courts of justice. Uh, another role of the public defender is, is to protect youth, to help youth to, and, and all members of society, frankly, to be arrest-free because we all know what it means to have criminal records. It impacts our ability to get employed uh, in society and to engage as active members. And in fact, we even have some who would take away, have taken away the right to vote for folks with felonies, but there are efforts underway actually to take away the right to vote for people with probation records. So we ought to pay attention to the policies that are being passed, but also work to give folks the most effective defense available in order to help them. And protecting our youth is an important part of that process. Uh, when we look at detention rates for youth of color, there are significant disparities in those detention rates. African-American youth are in residential placements at rates more than four times whites. Native American youth more than three times the rate of whites. And 
some folks might easily try to dismiss that by saying that, well, you know, these are just delinquent children, and they're just more prone, they're in, innately more prone to delinquency, but that is not the problem, and we should not so easily dismiss the seriousness of the matter by making those sorts of statements. White youth are 71% of the youth that are arrested for crimes, but only 37% of those detained um, in juvenile facilities, and the question that the public defender helps to ask is, what are we doing with our money and resources and in terms of investing in school programs, school education, in youth development programs? Why are we putting so, money, so much money into jails and criminal prosecutions? And so in that way, the public defender is a member of the community and a part of the community voice. And uh, as a part of the community voice, it's really important that the public defender not just sit back on the outskirts, but actually engage and understand what the dynamics are in the community. And to do that, it's important to partner with members of the community and don't just wait till people are in trouble or in a state of crises, but get to know them uh, when, when it's not a moment uh, of crisis and to partner with community groups and other social service agencies. So when we think about the role of the public defender in fighting institutional racism, the role of the public defender really is to put and keep race on the table as long as is necessary to ensure that there is equity and fairness. And let me just say in closing that there is a lot of talk about this country being post-racial and that we have hit the high watermark of equity uh, in this country with the election of President Obama. And we ought to very surely applaud ourselves for that incredible accomplishment. Certainly, that is the case. But woe unto us if that is the high watermark of our equity efforts in this country. Thank you, Kimberly. In the end, maybe it all just comes down to dollars. Governments have their mandates to provide services, and the funds to do that come from us, the public, from taxpayers. Barry Crisberg knows about costs when it comes to law enforcement and public defense. First of all, he has a Ph.D. <laughs> He's also the president of the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, renowned for his research and expertise on juvenile and criminal justice issues. Dr. Crisberg currently lectures at UC Berkeley's Legal Studies Department and at Bolt Hall. He's also served on the California Blue Ribbon Commission on Inmate Population Management. Dr. Crisberg, talk to us about money. Tell us how our tax dollars are being spent and ought be spent when it comes to protecting the public, which includes, of course, public defense work. Sure. Thank you. What I wanted to do is, is uh, uh, pull together some numbers and some quick research on this issue. First of all, to repeat what has already been uh, uh, mentioned, uh, uh, we're in a nationwide crisis. Uh, and these are just some examples around the country of, of uh, uh, what's going on in terms of the absence of, of defense lawyers. And you can see a, a list of places across the country, specific example. And in today's newspaper, uh, the Atlanta Constitution front page uh, reporting that 
lawyers, both public defenders and, and assigned counsel in Georgia, are no longer uh, agreeing to uh, uh, defend uh, people in the state of Georgia, including 10 death penalty cases. And the courts right now are allowing them to withdraw from these cases because of the crisis of funding in Georgia. Okay, next. Um, again, just, just to raise these issues, public defenders are particularly critical uh, because they're serving uh, defendants that do have prior criminal records and they're disproportionately serving uh, defendants of color. Uh, and these are the clients most likely to be sentenced to incarceration, which is where we spend the most money uh, in our criminal justice system. Uh, California Youth Authority uh, is now approaching 300,000 per kid per year for incarceration. The prison system is approaching 50,000 per inmate per year. Obviously, the services are, are woefully inadequate. So, so to the extent that public defenders can, can avert unnecessary incarceration, they're saving a lot of money. Uh, and it's also pretty clear, and the research supports it, that inadequate funding equals poor representation. Even the best people with the best intentions have, have limitations uh, in what they can do. And the research shows pretty clearly that when the funding is inadequate, the training goes down, it's tougher to recruit people, uh, that there are disincentives, uh, there's no money or almost no money for experts. Uh, there have been a number of cases in which, again, public defenders have skillfully defended people, uh, but, but uh, private attorneys have, have not been able to get the experts, put on the hearings, and, and, and often same cases produce radically different outcomes, often based on the effectiveness of representation that often we see in public defenders. And we shouldn't forget about support staff. Uh, without support staff, again, uh, and any of you that are involved in corporate litigation know how important that is and, and, and how central that is uh, for this. Next one. Uh, I wanted to look at some research just quickly and just pull some studies indicating that fully staffed and effective public defender services actually are cost-effective and save money. They decrease pretrial incarceration, and that's real money. Uh, they, uh, they reduce administrative work, and, and, and there's a budget predictability of public defense operations. And here's just some examples where the state of Virginia uh, saved over a, had demonstrated that it saved over a million dollars by having a public defender system. Texas indicating uh, that if they had a statewide system, which they do not, of public defenders, that the state of Texas would save $14 million. And that overall, in almost all the studies I've looked at, public defenders uh, are going to cost per case at least 5% and even more than when, when you go to an assigned counsel or other case. And again, here's a North Carolina study, again, showing one county that, was, that, that showed it could save uh, that, and a little county in North Carolina could save that much money by moving to a public defender system. Next. Um, overall, California, you can see how much money we're spending on public defenders. This is 05 data. Uh, so we spent 545 uh, million on public defense, but the same year we spent 7 billion on our correction system. Next. So, I mean, public defense is almost like a, you know, an adjustment. <laughs> uh, uh, here's some number from a bunch of counties uh, 
that we picked out some of the larger ones, looking at what they are spending on various aspects of their criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, this data comes from uh, 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 public defender's office, by and large, with a, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, and, I, and I put together some, some just pie charts to show you what this looks like. Uh, so, so why don't we go to the pie charts? Uh, Los Angeles, 5% of all the money they spend on criminal justice in Los Angeles is public defender. 7% for the district attorney's office. You can see the overwhelming uh, expenditures are for police, sheriff, and probation uh, operation. Next. Uh, this is San Diego. Again, 5% for the public defender, uh, twice as much on percentage of their funding spent on the district attorney's office. Next. Uh, Santa Clara County. Again, even larger. 16% of their budget spent on district attorney, 7% on public defender. Again, again, law enforcement, probation going to be the lion's share of this. Next. Here's San Francisco. We only spend 3% of our budget on the public defender. District attorney gets 4%. And again, you can see substantial investments here uh, for a police and sheriff. And by the way, the big other category here has to do with the fact that being a city and county, our fire budget goes in that we're in, in other counties. The fire budget is spread among city budgets. Okay, next. Uh, this is Orange County, same story. Uh, next, uh, Alameda County. Uh, again, you can see a similar discrepancy. You'll notice Alameda County, the neighboring county, is, is spending more than double on public defense than San Francisco. Okay, and next. This, I, I just wanted to go back to San Francisco and calculate these numbers per capita. So you can see per citizen or per resident of San Francisco County, we spend almost $29 a year for public defenders. We spend a little over 40 bucks for district attorneys, 54 for probation department, and 584 for our police and sheriff. So again, you can see even on a per capita basis, uh, the big discrepancies in that. Uh, so again, some numbers to give this some perspective. I kind of want to end with, with just uh, 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 one quip that used to come out of the Reagan years. Uh, in the Reagan years, the conservatives used to say uh, a conservative was a liberal who had been mugged. But I think for the purpose of this conference, it's important that the other side of that was a liberal was defined as, as a conservative who had been indicted. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Crisberg, for that informative presentation. So obviously, public defenders' offices and public indigent services are effective and efficient and financially sound, but we don't spend any money on them. We spend it elsewhere. The priorities are just wrong. Michael Hersek is our next speaker. Since 2004, he has been California's state public defender. Mr. Hersek also served six years as a staff attorney at the California Supreme Court, advising the seven justices on non-capital mat non criminal matters. He's also taught courses at Golden Gate University School of Law. 
He'll speak to us today to further underscore the financial cost of wrongful convictions and failure to expend enough money and resources on public defenders. Mr. Hersek, Bart Sheila told us recent, uh, earlier today about a decision in the California Supreme Court, a juvenile matter in which a conviction was set aside because the public defender on that case was underfunded, did not have enough resources, and admitted, essentially, that he had provided ineffective representation to his client. What does that mean for us as in the future? I feel like I'm back at law school with that question. <laughs> that, uh, that's true. Uh, Justice Klein just wrote um, uh, very provocative, thought-provoking opinion in In Re Edward S. Um, and it, that opinion uh, actually uh, mirrors findings made recently by the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice. I served on that commission with Michael and Cookie. And uh, we looked at the reasons for wrongful conviction and the costs of wrongful conviction. And I actually brought with me a prop not a slideshow, um, and it's the final report by the commission. You don't have to buy an expensive book. You can find it online at California Commission, oh, at ccfaj.org, and it answers a lot of the questions that um, were asked earlier. Uh, Cookie talked about exonerations and the nine DNA exonerations. It's important to understand that the nine DNA exonerations are, in fact, the tip of the iceberg if not just for sexual offenses, um, because that's where the uh, DNA is uh, found most prevalently, but also in all of uh, our criminal uh, justice cases, in all of our uh, cases. And what, where it's very difficult when you don't actually have a biological sample to prove yourself um, perfectly innocent, as the exonerees do. What I'm going to talk about a little bit is uh, wrongful conviction in general um, and the costs to society for wrongful conviction of which exonerees are a subset. And there are two uh, uh, points, preliminary points, uh, that are important to keep in mind. And these are in the Commission's uh, final report. Uh, first, that one-third of all the wrongful convictions in California over the last 10 years involve some form of ineffective assistance rendered at trial. And the vast majority of those cases um, involve a lack of investigation. And the second preliminary point I'll make is that we did a survey on the commission. We commissioned a survey um, to, of public defender offices and trial judges. 80% um, of the public defenders in, that responded to the survey, and we had high response rates, uh, reported excessive caseloads, and 100% reported invest, investigative overload. Too much investigation to do with the resources they were allotted. 69% of the judges who responded to that survey also found excessive investigative caseloads. And that's stunning if you think about it. Uh, if, if you're talking about cuts to a system that is already, this, this study was done two years ago, that is already has too high of a caseload per attorney and is suffering from excessive investigative overload, you're talking about causing more wrongful convictions because 
the, the reason that you get wrongful convictions in many of our cases is ineffective performance at trial, which includes investigation. Okay, so what are the costs of, of a system that fails at trial? And there are many. I'll focus on four. Uh, first, um, when local indigent resources um, are insufficient, uh, what you end up doing is transferring the costs that weren't spent up front to later in the system. You pay for it later, and that's important to remember. Um, invest, and, and that's for several reasons. Investigation post-conviction, in other words, to, to defense lawyers who take these cases um, in their appeals and on appeal and in habeas corpus have to expend extraordinary resources um, in order to investigate these cases after conviction. We get the cases later in time. It's difficult to find people. Records are routinely destroyed by public entities um, and private entities. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult to find the people who even testified at trial after you've aged these cases four or five years. More than half of the IAC reversals in the last 10 years, and there have been over 100 reversals, not just claims. There have been 2,500 um, claims of ineffective assistance of counsel raised in the last 10 years. But of the 100-plus that have actually resulted in a reversal, meaning that you've shown both deficient performance by trial counsel and prejudice, harm to the client, harm to the man who was or woman who was convicted, in those 100 cases... Um, the, uh, half of them made it all the way to federal court before relief was granted. And that means that they went through a state appeal, multiple levels of state habeas corpus, and into the federal system where, most likely, funds were for the first time released to properly investigate uh, the case. And that's largely because uh, the state courts, uh, the state appellate courts and the state Supreme Court are loath to provide the funding necessary in state post-conviction uh, to uh, investigate these cases once a guilty verdict has been rendered. At the moment, there are approximately 1,300 uh, attorneys in California who do nothing but try to fix the mistakes made at trial. And again, one of the largest mistakes is ineffective representation, which is the result of an over, already overburdened uh, caseload and investigative caseload. Second, the second uh, point for wrong, regarding re, uh, the cost of wrongful conviction that I'd like to mention is the high monetary price um, that counties pay directly for wrongful conviction. For failing to provide the resources up front, they end up, with pay, they end up paying in the back end, um, right now, millions of dollars for wrongful convictions. Herman Atkins was a Riverside man who spent 11 years in prison uh, for a crime he didn't commit. He's an exoneree. Um, he received a judgment against Riverside for $2 million. Similarly, John Stoll uh, recently received $700,000 for her, his uh, uh, Kern County uh, conviction. Uh, he spent 20 years in prison, and he's now pursuing his civil rights lawsuit. So there'll probably be a larger judgment. 
later. Indeed, in the past five years alone, uh, wrongful conviction, the Wrongful Conviction Compensation Fund, um, this little fund that you have to jump through hundreds of hoops to get even a penny from after you've been wrongfully convicted, and there's a six-month statute of limitations. It's very complicated, very difficult for someone who's been wrongfully convicted to take advantage of this fund. But that fund alone has paid $4 million out to people wrongfully convicted. Uh, the third cost of, wrong, the wrong, of wrongful conviction that we realize later in time um, is uh, the, the amount of money we pay on social services for those released back to the community after having been wrongful convicted. And shockingly, people who are re released on parole have more funds and resources than the wrongfully convicted that get released. It's absolutely stunning, and I encourage you to read uh, the Commission's report, if, if for no other reason, on that uh, particular uh, uh, issue. Uh, and, of course, there's no money that can compensate the broken families, the marriages that fail because of wrongful conviction. Uh, the wrongfully convicted lose their the rights to see their children, have to fight to get those restored. It, it costs an incredible amount of money for the health services for the wrongfully convicted because uh, the exonerees and wrongfully convicted often um, have a whole constellation of mental health problems. Uh, when you've spent 20 years in prison, it's hard to get a job um, because you have a little gap in your resume. <laughs> um, and if anyone wants to, to uh, understand a little bit more about wrongful conviction and the effects on family and uh, the, the innocent, uh, I suggest you look at the documentary, After Innocence. It is uh, startling. Fourth and finally, uh, Cookie already touched on it, one of the costs of, the wrong, of wrongful conviction is the fact that the perpetrator is still out there um, and uh, we can only uh, guess as to what additional costs to society um, that injustice uh, is creating. Again, I, I encourage you all to take a look at the Commission's website, uh, ccfaj.org, for more information on this subject. Thank you, Michael. And finally, public defenders, turns out, do more than simply appear in court to represent the indigent. They expose systemic problems, such as the toxicology scandal in Southern California. Watch this short video clip. Welcome back. A toxicologist who has worked on hundreds of cases for the San Diego District Attorney's Office has admitted to fraud, forgery, and perjury. And now defense attorneys and their clients say they may have been wrongfully convicted. And tonight, they want answers from District Attorney Bonnie Dumanis. Jeff Powers joins us live with exclusive details in this, Jeff. Jim and Heather, 30-year-old Aaron Layton worked for a company called Biotox out of Riverside County. The DA's office there has ordered a review of 3,000 cases tonight. In San Diego, Layton may have had hundreds of cases. Tonight, defense attorneys just learning of this evidence want answers. In a confidential memo released by District Attorney Bonnie Dumanis to San Diego defense attorneys, 
Dumanis says, quote, the DA's office is in possession of potential impeachment material regarding former Biotox analyst Aaron Layton. Now, from 2007 until early this year, Layton worked at Biotox, which contracts with Riverside, San Bernardino, and San Diego counties. Layton was in charge of conducting blood work in cases involving alcohol and drugs. And it's believed in that time his fingerprints are on thousands of cases. We just don't know the full extent, and we're trying to, by reaching out to everybody, find out all the possible cases uh, he's involved in. I don't think it goes to that level of murder, but, uh, but I can't say that for sure. We've had other problems with the crime labs in San Diego. We've had other investigations. We've asked um, the district attorney's office and the city attorney's office to investigate crime lab problems in the past, and they refused to do it. That was defense attorney Mary Prevost, who, along with attorneys Alan Bloom and Paul Finks, had harsh criticisms tonight of district attorney Don Bonnie Dumanis. In conversations I had with them, they all say she is more concerned about what they say, circling the wagons and protecting her own, than justice. That she is an elected official and owes it to the public to be forthcoming with information and not, they say, conceal the truth. Dumanis says her office is interested in full disclosure and are willing to take their time to ensure they find every case Layton was involved with. Now, I did speak with representatives of Biotox this afternoon. They told me they have retested some 500 samples Layton worked on and the results come back consistent with his original tests, although those cases, none of them, were from San Diego. Live in the newsroom tonight, Jeff Powers, San Diego 6 News. Christine Boss is a supervising public defender of Riverside County. Uh, previously, she served 10 years as a deputy public defender for Riverside and the Santa Barbara County Public Defender Offices. In 1988, Ms. Voss received the Santa Barbara Public Defender Attorney of the Year Award. So, Ms. Voss, how was it that the Public Defender's Office became involved in this investigation? And what exactly did the office do? Well, frankly, the easy answer to that is we were just doing our job. Um, I'd love to say we had a special task force, we formed a committee, but what really happened was a day in the life of a public defender. Um, back on December 22nd of 2008, so just a few months ago, one of our youngest, newest, least experienced lawyers was about to do a DUI trial. And as in many counties, but particularly in Riverside, we have more filings and more trials than there are courtrooms to accommodate. So when a case gets to a courtroom, everybody's pressuring that case to move through the process so the next case can come through. It is a mill if it's allowed to be. So this young man was in a courtroom three days before Christmas. The judge, the DA, the court reporter, the clerk, the bailiff, Everybody was thinking about wrapping Christmas presents and buying their turkey and not interested in the man sitting next to him. And when the judge asked, are you ready for trial, he said, well, I have a problem because the district attorney still has not run background checks on the witnesses he intends to call at trial. And I kid you not, the district attorney turned to him and said, that's what makes you the dirtbag that you are. That didn't slow him down, 
because it was nothing new to be called names. So he insisted that a background check be done, and the toxicologist Aaron Layton happened to be sitting in the courtroom because jurors had been summoned. They were ready to go. And the DA turned to the toxicologist and said, so do you have any criminal record? And shockingly, he said, no. And so the district attorney then said, well, as an officer of the court, I'll represent that he has no criminal record. But our young lawyer didn't stop there and said, well, I'd really like to see a rap sheet. So the case was continued another day with all the eye rolling and sighs and guffaws that we were slowing down the system. <laughs> we weren't playing along. We weren't just going with the flow. And the next day, the DA came in with a rap sheet and a different toxicologist. But that was just the tip of the iceberg because his rap sheet discovery is what led to us learning that he had actually had prior employment in another laboratory and it was in that laboratory that he had used his employer's notary stamp, forged his employer's name, not conducted secondary tests on alcohol and marijuana tests, and then actually perjured himself about that. So this isn't a guy who committed perjury about something unrelated to the criminal justice system. It actually was directly related to his prior employment in a laboratory. But the story continues because we'd like to think this is an anomaly, and this was one young lawyer who stumbled upon something, but this happens day in and day out and happens to be the one that we caught. And the way that it happens is because we have this attitude where we become lax and trusting and the government agencies involved, the DA, the police department who contracted with Biotox, Biotox itself, they, they were just shocked. Oh, how could this possibly happen? They have become a, a brethren of trust and if it's not for the public defenders who are instituting the checks and balances on these folks, this will continue. And I assure you, it's happened before, and it will happen again. You just heard on the news clip that, according to Biotox, they have retested the samples and they have come back consistent. I'm going to tell you about a couple examples where I say no. Um, we have found one case where the blood test for a DUI conducted by Aaron Layton was a .08. Everyone knows that's guilty. After Aaron Layton was discovered, a retest was done, it came back a .06. The simple fact is that's not guilty. And had it not been for this young lawyer standing up and finding out about this guy, that blood never would have even been retested. We have found another case that was the drug result that came back positive, and after retest, no drugs have been detected. So when they say that everything has come back consistent, we have to wonder if we have different definitions of what consistent is, because they seem to think this is okay. This is too much time and trouble to reopen these cases, to investigate what happened, and to consider even the possibility that someone made a mistake by letting this happen. I somehow got involved in this because a different young lawyer came to my office 
in January and said, I have a, something I need to tell you, but it's a secret. It's like, a legal secret? What kind of secret are we talking about? And she said, well, the DA's come into court and has some information she needs to tell me, but the judge said I can't tell anyone else. And so I convinced the judge to let me tell one supervisor, so I'm allowed to tell you the secret. It turned out that despite this discovery in December, judges were issuing gag orders and protective orders preventing us from even discussing this within our own office, never mind outside to the private bar. And it wasn't until two months later that San Diego and San Bernardino learned that they had cases affected because it was the dirty little secret that was being swept under the rug. So when we find out about these things, I have to wonder what would have happened if it wasn't for that young lawyer. I sit now in my office surrounded by piles and piles of files, and we're talking thousands, and each of those cases is associated with a name, a human being, and a family. And all of those people I've made contact with have said thank you so much for caring and going back to look at my case. But if it wasn't for those public defenders, I beg the question, where would we be right now and who would help those individuals? Thank you, Christine Voss, and thank you to all the intrepid public defenders and other defenders across this land who stand in there and put up with that kind of crap. Um, we have time for a couple, only a couple of quick questions. And the first one, I will ask anybody who volunteers, perhaps Michael Judge, where, <laughs> who and where would be the likely resource to make up for budget cuts um, that would have to be made? Well, obviously, I'm uh, not a member of the Board of Supervisors, um, but we could start there. I mean, they have, <laughs> they, they have budgets for their own offices. And uh, there are a lot of discretionary projects um, that are funded every year, and they're good ones. You know, they're good for the community, but they are not absolute constitutional mandates. And so uh, we'd start with anything that is not a constitutional mandate. And, you know, when you look at what a small percentage of the public defender's budget is of the total budget, it seems to me that it might not be popular, but pretty easy to come up with the, the money necessary to properly fund the San Francisco Public Defender. Thank you, Michael. This question is directed to Kimberly Rapp -Tom, uh, Thomas Rapp, Rapp Thomas. Why is institutional racism not addressed, particularly in the courtroom? It's Thomas Rapp. Thomas Rapp. Uh, I'm so sorry. And um, I think the courts are overwhelmed and need help to address institutional racism. One of the big, largest, most significant cases that actually uh, explain this is a case called McCleskey versus Kemp, in which there was an African-American man who was up for the death penalty in a criminal case. And there was overwhelming evidence about the disparities, uh, the statistical disparities in treatment and what happened with the jur jury in his case. 
And the judge essentially said, to address the problem in this case, we would have to dig into all of the challenges of the entire criminal justice system, and however are we to do that? And what I, what I really encourage all of us to do is to encourage our DAs, our public defenders, and all of those who are a part of the criminal justice system to actually ensure that it is a system. The moment it is not a system, and certainly not a system of justice in many, many cases, and it takes work, it's not easy to do, but we have got to dig in and ask the tough questions. Thank you, Kimberly. As, uh, as my buddy Ted and I wrap up our morning session, I just have a brief comment to make, and then Ted will come up and give you some more information about lunch and what happens thereafter. Uh, I thank our esteemed panelists. I thank the Honorable Felton Henderson. I thank San Francisco's courageous public defender. And I thank all of his lawyers and his staff. And I thank all of you for taking the time to attend the summit, which we hope has made you believers in the system created by a courageous California woman, and which, courtesy of our nation's highest court, has risen to constitutional stature. In 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. came to Stanford University and delivered a groundbreaking speech called The Other America. And there's a little part of that speech that absolutely pertains to everybody in this room. And Dr. King said this, it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not only for the violent acts of the bad people and the vitriolic words of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we have got to realize that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without that hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time. We must realize that the time is always ripe to do right. So we must not be silent or indifferent on this issue. It is our time to speak up. No one in Washington, D.C., no one here in San Francisco can muzzle us. Please join us in making your voices heard. The proposed budget cuts to the Public Defender's Office must not happen. The time is ripe to do right. Now that was inspiring, as were all the comments from our panelists. Thank you all so much. Before we go to lunch, just a couple quick things. I want to add my voice just to one thing. I want to, please, close your eyes for a minute and imagine that Judge Felton Henderson were here. <laughs> I think he might say something like this. The methods we employ in the enforcement of our criminal law have aptly been called the measures by which the very quality of our civilization will be judged. Those were the words of Chief Justice Earl Warren 50 years ago, and they very aptly sum up what we've heard today. 
Uh, before we leave, we want to make a quick pitch to you about what you can do to help. That was one of the questions that was asked. And Crystal Lamb from the, uh, which county? Sacramento County Public Defender's Office and a board member of California Attorneys for Criminal Justice is going to tell us what to do. Hello. I'm sure that you've been inspired by these excellent speakers today. What we are asking all of you to do is to become defenders yourself. We're asking you to become defenders of the Constitution, of the right to counsel, of the poor and vulnerable among us. At the end of this room, there is a table, and there are postcards. I'm sorry, there are postcards. <laughs> to Mayor Newsom. Please pick one up, sign it, and put it in the mail. In addition, you can go to our website, www.cacj.org, and there is a letter already composed, and send it to Mayor Newsom. Send it to uh, the Board of Supervisors. Send it to your representatives in the state and federally. Thank you. You've all been so patient. Thank you very much for your patience. That concludes the morning program. We'll be back at 1.25 p.m. to hear what this is really all about. We'll hear from the clients. We'll hear about real people with real lives who are affected every day by the fine work of public defenders and indigent defenders across this country. We also will hear a, a live music program uh, from, from a youth group here in San Francisco. So please come back at 1.25 p.m. In the meantime, lunch is just outside the door. You can get tickets for it as you leave the room. You'll get directions. Thank you, everybody.